0: You are now listening to What the Hell, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 83 of What the Health. I'm your host, Lena Lahire and today i have special guest dr candace connor phd joining me Candace is a recently retired professor of psychology at the University of Calgary. She received her PhD in clinical psychology with a specialty in aging from the University of Southern California and teaches undergraduate courses in aging and clinical psychology, graduate courses in psychopathology and clinical geropsychology, and is actively involved in the supervision of graduate students. She has served as the Director of Training and the Practicum Coordinator for the Clinical Psychology Program at the U of C, and has been the recipient of numerous awards, including the University of Calgary Department of Psychology Undergraduate Research Supervision Award, the University of Calgary Students' Union Excellence in Teaching Award, and the Canadian Council of Professional Psychology Programs Excellence in Training Award. She is also the co-author of the textbook Adult Development and Aging Second Edition and has published widely on topics such as the prevention of depression in nursing home residents, family staff conflict in long-term care, body satisfaction among middle-aged and older women, barriers to accessing mental health care, and most recently, Planning for future aging. Her passions in life include hiking, skiing, fly fishing, and traveling the world. I wanted to have Dr. Connor come on the podcast to talk about healthy aging and what that looks like. In this episode, we discuss what healthy aging is and why we should care about it regardless of our age and the difference between normal age-related changes versus abnormal changes. We talk about the physical, psychological, and social determinants of health, the role of lifestyle and its effects on healthy aging, prevention strategies, and warning signs of dementia. If you are interested in the topic of aging and aging well or know someone who is, then this episode is for you. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the show, Dr. Connor.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, it's so nice to have you. Um, before we jump into healthy aging and talking about healthy aging, I'd like to know and I'm sure our listeners would like to know a little bit about your background and how you got into this field of work.
1: okay um, well I was I am a professor was a professor at the University of Calgary for 33 years recently retired uh, September 1. Um, And so I guess I feel very lucky because my passion for this topic has never waned. So it sustained me over 33 years of teaching and research and and community outreach. And uh, so I feel, feel very fortunate for that. Um, It started back at Simon Fraser University when I was an honors student and an undergraduate honors student. And I took a course from a woman. I was actually a seminar. Uh, I had fully intended at that point in time to do pediatrics because I also really love children. And so then I took a senior seminar in aging, uh, which just really ignited my passion for working with older people. Um, And so then I went on to graduate school um, and chose a program where you could combine both clinical psychology and also aging. Um, And the more I uh, was involved in the program and the more therapy I did with older adults, the more assessment, uh, the more exciting I found it. So um, they just I just find the richness of their stories and the way their lives intersect, you know, historical influences, cohort influences, life circumstances, I think the trajectory of their lives uh, can be extremely interesting and um, admittedly complex. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I got started many, many years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. That's quite, um, you know, opposite paths, thinking you're gonna go study children, work with children, and you end up working in the opposite end of the spectrum.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. But it was a decision. It was a good decision in retrospect. And yeah.
0: Wonderful. So why talk about healthy aging? I'm sure there's lots of listeners that maybe are in their 20s, or, you know, don't consider themselves old, they're not old by, you know, whatever society standards, why should they care about aging?
1: Okay, um, well, i think I think the first important thing to say is when I talk about health, I'm talking about it uh, in a very holistic way. So my background and my training has really been in mental health. So I kind of think about the total package mm-hmm. as, as I know you do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so i guess I guess the reason is is that um, age is a universal characteristic in terms of being uh, a diversity characteristic. So we all age the people that we love are aging. So I think, um, and we know from research that uh, sort of the roots of healthy aging um, start at at a very young age. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're in your twenties and your thirties, the things that you're doing now will influence how you age. um, And it will also influence uh, how your parents age, you know, some some people may have experience with grandparents. So I think, you know, the roots of aging well, um, are laid down very early on in life. And I can give you some examples of that, if you like. Yeah, please. Okay, so I mean, we often think about things like exercise and a uh, diet, um, and lifestyle, other lifestyle kinds of issues, but um, there are also things that maybe we don't think about, sort of establishing supportive networks. Um, you know, facing difficult like life circumstances, and when that happens, um, you have to engage coping strategies. And I think the more you experience those kinds of things, the more resilient uh, you become um, over a lifetime. And what's interesting about working with older adults is that many of them come to me as a therapist with, uh, you know, uh, coping strategies, a lifetime of good coping strategies, a lifetime of good problem solving abilities. And often what you're doing is you're helping them to engage those in very novel circumstances. Mm -hmm. So bereavement is something that many older adults will, I mean, many many people will not have experienced until they grow older. So yeah, so I think I think it, it's um, so so the roots of aging well, and aging in a healthy manner are laid down very early on in life. We also know that families are influenced by an aging family member. So a mm-hmm. uh, caregiving is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, your your mother or your father uh, may be caring for an aging relative, um, a grandparent perhaps, and that is associated with a certain amount of stress, and that stress uh affects all generations in the family. So many people may have observed that as well in their own families. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think there are lots of reasons to think about aging.
0: Yeah. I love that you brought that up. That's actually a little shout out to my mom because I know she listens. She uh, is taking care of my grandma. She's the the primary caregiver for my grandma. My grandma just went through a transition where she's now um, consuming her food through a tube so she can yeah. no longer. And I mean, like the amount of work that goes into, you know, making sure that she gets her, her feeding in and it's just, it's an enormous amount of stress that I've watched her go through.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, what, what is, is difficult is that often caregivers go through this uh, largely on their own, Yeah, you know, so they have people that listen to them and may provide some emotional support, but um, they go through it with very little support from the, from, for example, the federal government in terms yes. of, you know, um, in terms of financial kinds of things or, um and and so, yeah, it's uh, it's a very difficult situation to be in, uh, associated with, you know, and, and again, I should also say that there are, you know, joys associated with caregiving. For sure. I don't want to paint a completely negative picture. And that's something that researchers tend to overlook or the joys and the rewards of being a caregiver. Um, they tend to focus on the more negative kinds of circumstances, But uh, but it is extremely difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about, how we define age, because I think when people think about age, they think of, you know, chronological age, how old you are, the number of years, but what are some other ways that we define age and what could be an issue with just using chronological age as a measure?
1: Well, we use chronological age because it's simple. Yeah. Um, everybody understands it. And, you know, if you look at the research, uh, if you look at journal articles and, and those kinds of things, um you know, people, uh, you know, all always use chronological age, but there are a whole bunch of other different ways of of looking at age. The first and probably the the most um, well researched is subjective age. Mm-hmm. So, how old do you feel? And this is where you get a real gap between subjective age and chronological age. So um, women, in fact, more than men feel much younger than their chronological age. And this can sometimes be, you know, decades younger. Mm. Um, And so you have this split between how people feel and their their chronological age. You also have functional age. So what can people do? And there's been a call in the literature to report more data on sort of what are the health circumstances that people are in, Um, because. Because, you know, two 80 year olds, for example, can be very different in terms of their functional abilities. Mm. So, you know, that's another way. Um... Uh, so so those would be the two most common, I think. Um, awareness of the aging process is another newer development in this area. So how aware are you and what made you aware of the fact that you're aging? And mm-hmm. it can be internal processes. So for example, chronic illnesses or uh, arthritic changes or those kinds of things. Uh, but it can also be external influences. So how people treat you yeah. um, as an older person. So, you know, does somebody, I remember one One of, I think I uh, had mentioned this before uh, to you, but, you know, the first time somebody got up for me on a bus, a a younger person did, you know, I thought to myself, why are you getting up for me? I'm not old. (laughs) (laughs) And it was interesting because my own mother uh, was very, she found that very insulting. And, you know, she was traveling the bus in her 80s, very small woman, uh, you know, looked frail. Um, but you know, when people would get up for her on the bus, she would actually find that quite insulting. So there's this awareness of aging, and and when you started to feel older, and sometimes it's tied to life events. Yeah. So you know the the death of a of someone who's close to you, or the onset of a chronic illness, or so we're very interested in in what it is that makes people feel older and that's been a newer development um, in the literature and then finally uh, kind of how you how you see yourself in the life span so do you think about the number of years that you've lived or do you think about the number of years until you die and somewhere you know in the lifespan people start to make this transition so some of the most recent research has kind of used time and the perception of time as a way of figuring out well where are people in this life span um so yeah there are many ways to define it when
0: when does that that's so interesting when does that transition happen when you start thinking about the years you have left compared to how many years you've spent
1: you know, it's extremely variable. And again, I don't have the data at my fingertips. What I yeah. basically have are surveys of undergraduate students over 30 years. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, you'll get people who, you know, in their 20s and 30s will say, OK, you know, I have this many years to reach my goals. Um, and then you'll have people, you know, who are older and still think about the time, you know, since birth. So, um Yeah, so I'm not really sure what the determinants of that are. It may have something to do, I would think, with, again, life events. Mm. So, you know, we talk about social age. That's another way that we define aging, you know, where you are in terms of your social age. So if you're on time, you're basically doing things in sync with your peers, you know, um, in terms of education and finding a partner and, um, you know, getting a, your career established. But there are also off-time people who experience off-time events. So being a widow when you're in your 30s, yeah. um, going back to school when you're in your 50s or 60s or even older. Yeah. So I suspect where you find yourself in that um, in that time frame may have something to do with your life events. Um, and whether you've experienced some of the events that we typically associate with being older mm. uh, at a younger age. But again, I think this is a really exciting area of research that you know could be pursued.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. I wonder if uh, personality also has yes. a role to play in it, like how positive or how negative someone, uh, their demeanor is like glass, half empty, glass, half full.
1: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think some of the personality variables are things like conscientiousness. So are, yeah. you know, are you a planner? You know, some people are planners, some people are not. Um, and so, you know, if if you're planning, if you if you have your life mapped out in front of you and you say, these are the goals that I have for my life and these are the ages that, that I wish to meet those goals, mm-hmm. um, then you might have more of an orientation towards, you uh, um, you know, seeing yourself in terms of the times you have have left versus the times since you were born. So, I think there are a lot of personality variables that that could account for that. I think it also has to do with to what extent you're you're able and willing to face your own aging. Mm. Um, and you know, we talk about some you know theories like ter- terror management theory, which you're probably familiar with as a social psychologist. But a lot of people really don't want to think about their own aging, and they don't want to think about the aging of the people that they love because the endpoint to aging, of course is death um and so um yeah so i think there's something there's something there as well but Mm. your point is very well taken
0: Mm. yeah it, it makes me think of the cultural differences as well because many cultures they don't have a problem with death but in a in western culture we don't deal with death very well
1: that's absolutely right. And they also have different attitudes about aging. Yes. So I think, you know, the cross-cultural perspective is, is really important to consider as well. Um, yeah.
0: A lot of nuance does like life expectancy is increasing, health is increasing, but yet people also have chronic illnesses and disabilities. And it's just like, uh, you know is 65 really old age? Like, you know, retiring at 65? Yeah. Or is that going to span? Because 65 is now not old. It's
1: not. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. We you know we make an interesting distinction. We talk about life expectancy, which is now about 79 for men and 84 for women. But right. I think the more important um the more important data has to do with what we call health adjusted life expectancy. Um, so how long, you know, are people going to live in good health? Um, and to what extent, how many years do people live with debilitating chronic illness and, you know, other kinds of, of health concerns. And many people have said this, but I mean, and I agree with them is that we're, we're living longer, but not necessarily better. Mm -hmm. Um, and technology is is allowed for that Um, so you know the lifespan has been extended but you know much of the later years uh, are you know sort of spent in ill ill health or with cognitive impairments so Mm -hmm. I think um, and I think you have to ask yourself the question you know do you want that is that something as a society we want do we want that as individuals Uh, but yeah it's a very prevalent kind of theme
0: yeah, that I think the healthy uh, life expectancy is what seventy years, about seventy years. So on average, people can expect to spend ten years of their life with at
1: least one chronic illness. Exactly. Yeah, you got pulled that number out of a hat. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's seventy-one for women and sixty-nine well, for men. But but well, good for yeah. you. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> that's that's a that's an important number to know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it it leads us into the next topic. Uh, a beautiful segue, actually. So what can we do to increase our healthy life expectancy? What are some of the factors that determine health? I know we talked about like how, how we see ourselves, some social factors, but like, if we could go a little bit more in depth into these determinants of health.
1: Okay, yeah. So um, biologically, uh, genetic factors play a role. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, having said that, uh, there's lots of room for lifestyle factors as well. So yeah. um, susceptibility to stress, you know, how you manage stress, what kind of coping strategies you've learned to manage that stress Um Lifestyle factors, you know, diet, exercise, all those other kinds of things that we think about, social support, um, that's not really a biological factor, but um, cognitive reserve would be another example um, in terms of biological aging. uh, Could
0: Could you explain what that is?
1: Yeah, so cognitive reserve is sort of the accumulation of things like education and experience. Um, And we know that that cognitive reserve is protective against the onset of major neurocognitive disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that would be kind of another biological factor, um, you know, that would come into play. Um, in terms of psychological factors, I've already mentioned social support, I guess that would be a social factor to some extent, they're, they're all kind of overlapping, but, okay. um, you know, how, how you cope with life events, uh, what your coping strategies are, uh, what are your control mechanisms. So, you know, you know, we talk about aging as being, in some ways, um, you know, the challenge is to maintain control. Uh, as long as possible. And again, in advanced old age, you have to relinquish some of that control. So, you know, can you take control over situations? Um, And again, I guess, you know, discerning what kinds of circumstances you want to exert control. So for example, if you're a if you're a person that's faced with a stressor where you absolutely have no control and you try and exert control, that's gonna that's not going to work well for you. Mm. Um, so again, being able to discern, you know, what kinds of circumstances do I have control over, what kind of stressors I have control over, and what don't I have control over, and then once you do feel that you have control, you appraise it as being something that you have control over. Do you have the coping strategies to um, enact in those kinds of in those kinds of circumstances? So control, I think personality in terms of, of another of another psychological factor as you mentioned some people are just more optimistic than others they're optimistic about everything mm-hmm. um and again you know uh, about their own aging about their life circumstances so certainly that's a factor attitudes towards aging um, yes. and your willingness to kind of think about that and plan for that and i guess you know when you think about role transitions and this is true at every stage of the lifespan, your flexibility and your adaptability, you know? Mm-hmm. So your willingness, if you have a coping strategy that's not working, to step back and say, okay, that's not working for me, but this might. So mm-hmm. that flexibility and adaptability and your willingness to try new strategies in the face of adversity, I think is another really important psychological factor. And finally, the, the ability to use humor. Um, I, I don't think that we emphasize that enough, um, you know, in, in terms of our, uh, you know, the way we cope with things. And uh, I mean, that's certainly an important, um, another important coping strategy. Some of the social um, kinds of things that we tend to think about, um, obviously social support,
0: yeah.
1: um, you know, being in community uh, with others, um you know, wanting staying engaged and not feeling marginalized. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in society, you know it's hard as an older person not to feel marginalized because of the you know discrimination and stigma that older adults feel. Um, and they also internalize those that stigma and their, those stereotypes. And so they come to see themselves as burdens or as not as, you know, accomplished or, you know, having nothing to contribute to society. So they begin to internalize those kinds of things. Um, and again, you know, there's all kinds of contextual influences uh, that are, I guess, some are social in social in nature. So, you know, having age friendly environments, you know, we talk about age friendly cities. Um, to what extent do people find themselves in environments that kind of support their ongoing function? So we talk about aging in place, but does do people have the supports in their homes to yeah. continue to support their health? Um, and then finally, you know, one of the influences, contextual influences I've become interested in quite recently is climate change. hmm. So, you know, climate change has extremely adverse effects on the most vulnerable and marginalized in society, and older people, you know, are in that category. So you think about the heat dome that affected Vancouver uh, in, I think, 2021, um, almost 600 people died in that heat wave, and about 70% of them were older people. So, you know, that, that affects your ability to age well, you know. In addition, so yeah, there's all these sort of social and contextual influences that we need to think about.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. It's such a nuanced area, isn't it? Yeah. What um, let's dive into a little bit of the things that we can personally control, like diet and exercise, because I know that you are a big proponent of exercise. Um and exercising longevity, you <laughs> <laughs> you exercise a lot and and you can tell yeah. you're in great shape. Um, what role does exercise? Well, I don't know play? about
1: that, but you
0: are in great shape.
1: <laughs> well, it plays, yeah, it plays it plays so many different roles. You know, I mean, I think at a, at a biological level, it has good effects. Your cardiovascular system, you know, strength training is wonderful for falls. Um, you know and and balance and and all those other kinds of things i mean falls as you know is a huge public health problem huge. in older adults because it, it it you know often it starts this cascading effect where people have a you know they they have a fall, um, they're, they break a hip, they're admitted to acute care, you know, they get delirium, and they never really recover fully. So mm-hmm. I think I can't say enough good things about strength training, aerobic training, um, because of the cardiovascular benefits and the effects on your brain. And I guess at a very, at a, I mean, it also being outdoors in particular, you know, we're reading more and more about being outdoors as a form of therapy. Yeah. Um, there's something very calming and very positive about being in a natural environment um, that I think, you know, really has has huge effects on people's health Um yeah, so I guess um and again, you know, I think exercise also especially if it's done in a group activity has immense social benefits. Yeah. So and this has been the challenge for the research that we've done is how to disentangle those benefits, you know, the 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 the, the physical, the social, the cognitive um but being in a group with other people doing exercise You know, and again, it can be things like Tai Chi or, you know, group based exercises, or even if something is simple in a nursing home of, you know, you know, throwing a ball around or doing kind of more limited exercise is incredibly beneficial. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so I really um, I'm a firm proponent of exercise at any age. And I guess what's what's really important and what I really want your your listeners to know is that the data supports exercise at any age has benefits. So you can start when you're 80, and you can start when you're 90, or you can start as a centenarian, and it will you will still get tremendous benefits from that exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the issue with every age group is compliance, you know, how do we how do we help people be compliant with a with an exercise regimen?
0: Totally. Because it's not the amount that you do. It's the frequency that you do it. Right. So you could do 15 minutes a day of, you know, high quality strength training, and you could still see those benefits by doing it consistently rather than trying to, you know, hammer out two hours a day or, you know, whatever you think, whatever the fitness industry is telling you that you need to do. It also, um, kind of coming back to what you said, like things are laid down early on. Um, and you know, with age, we lose muscle mass, and that atrophy doesn't just happen overnight. That occurs over a lifetime of physical inactivity, and that you know sarcopenia is is so detrimental as you get older. Um, and strength training is the only way to combat that. Well, not well, not the only way, but the yeah. main way to to combat that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, just going back to to some of the some of the psychological benefits of, of exercise, you know, the feeling of empowerment. Yeah. The feeling of self-efficacy, you know, being able to say, I did this. Yeah. You know, so at every level, exercise is good. Um, mm-hmm. but I I'm preaching to the converted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> why why do you think, and I'd like to just have a conversation, why do you think people just don't exercise, do you think it's a matter of like, it almost seems like it's too simple to, you know, just get some, some physical exercise in like, how is that really going to solve this issue down the road?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it I think there's a lot of factors involved. I'm interested in sort of the systemic factors and yeah. to what extent you know these kinds of things are accessible to people.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, whether there's support in the community for doing it, whether it's being recommended by the medical by their by their physicians yeah you know I mean it's a it's a big I mean and all there's all kinds of personality variables and and person environment and person kinds of things but but growing old is all about person versus you know interacting with environment yeah so even for somebody who has all the sort of personality characteristics or the the, the personal inclination if it's not accessible and it's not encouraged yeah then, then people aren't going to do it um so, I think, you know, like all facets of prevention, it has to be the message that, that we're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, quite frankly, I'm not sure. And, you know, and there's also sort of a risk element involved as well. Yeah. So, you know, if an 80-year-old says, okay, I want to start exercising, there's an element of risk to that. Um, you know, so we're, you know, what what sort of what we talk about in the in the uh, area is security autonomy dialectic. Mm-hmm. And the security autonomy dialectic refers to the fact that, you know, we have to be secure in our environments, but we also need to give people autonomy to do what they want to do. And so when you look at the number of people that are sort of involved in the worlds of older people, you've got family members, you've got, you know, maybe family doctors, you know, other people in the healthcare team, they may not be on the same page in terms of what level of risk they're willing to, let, you know, um, they're willing to live with in mm-hmm. terms of caring for this older person. And you see that in nursing homes uh, because there are all kinds of liability issues there around falls and yeah, and those yeah. kinds of things. So, yeah. So I mean, I think that's something that influences people's willingness or ability to exercise as well. Um, and lifetime habits are hard to change. Um, so
0: yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're right as well. Like hearing it from, so here's an example. (laughs) I used to be a personal trainer for 10 years, exercises, you know, predominantly been a part of my life for most of my life. So my family has a tendency to think it's just a me thing. It's just like exercise is just a Lena thing. It's like getting (laughs) convincing them, that it's actually not just a me thing. It's a people thing everyone should engage in some kind of exercise is challenging. So my stepfather just fell and hurt himself and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I kept saying it's because he doesn't have strength in his leg. Like he needs to strength train. And, you know, obviously I, I think that probably went in one ear and out the other. And then yesterday, uh, they went and said that he has to see a physio because he has tendonitis and he needs to strengthen his legs. And so they're all on board. I'm like, yeah.
1: It's just said that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, I've had that experience so many times. Um, in fact, I've stopped giving advice uh, because <laughs> at the end of the day, people will do what they will do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I think families are complex <laughs> <They> are. <laughs> and at some level, you know, Uh, People don't really see you as an as an expert, so um, yeah, often that advice is better. But it's it's better if it comes from other people.
0: Yeah, (laughs) but you know, there's so much research coming out with the benefits of strength training uh, in all of those different facets that I think it's going to have its day, or it's it's having its day, and more and more doctors are recommending strength training, not just cardio, but strength training. So you're right. We need to be hearing it. Um, we need to hear that message over and over again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I tore my MCL back in April and, uh, so yeah, so it, and it's uh, my, my mobility is, is great, but it did, I had to spend a lot of months in physiotherapy and, uh, it gave me just a little glimpse of what, uh, you know, what having a functional limitation, you know, must be like. Yeah. Um, Especially when you're so active. Yeah, yeah. Well it 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 yeah, it did um limit my hiking this summer, but but right. that's okay. It's not gonna limit my skiing. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um it's interesting, you know, you talked about how we perceive ourselves and how that influences aging and how um older adults start to internalize these messages. What are some of the myths? Uh, that are kind of perpetuated in society about aging that we in turn internalize?
1: Um, I think things like depression, you know, it's normal to be depressed as you grow older. Um, I think it's normal to sort of curtail your activities. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think there are sort of myths about cognitive aging um, and, you know, gr- granted cognition changes with age, but, um, it's, you know, not everybody is destined to have a major neurocognitive disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just that the data just simply don't support that. Um, I think older adults are marginalized to some extent. You see it cropping up, um, in, uh, you know, workplaces, um, families, um, you know, just sort of all kinds of systems, healthcare systems. Um, I think they're treated differently by the healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think it's very pervasive.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I. It's also interesting, you know, how I hear a lot of it and I don't even know how, you know, whether to challenge the belief right then and there, Um. I often hear people say, like, oh yeah, getting old sucks, or you know, my knee is really bad, it's getting old. And I kind of just want to say, Well, you have another knee and that's not bad. So, like, how are you attributing that yeah. knee to age when the other knee is the exact same age? But like, you know, how do you have that conversation yeah. with someone to say, like, that's actually a really toxic belief
1: to have? It is a toxic belief to have. And I think I think what's so toxic about it is it implies that you have no control over your destiny. Um, and that is um, a very damaging uh, belief. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, psychologically, we know the power of our beliefs and our dysfunctional thoughts. You don't have to look very far. Cognitive behavioral psychology is all about that. Yeah. Um, and so if that's the message you're getting about the fact that you have no control over your aging and, you know, there's no point in planning For your aging, um, then I I think, you know, that that is going to be very damaging. And I think, you know, language is everything. Mm -hmm. So the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, JAGS, which is one of the top journals in my field, has come out with language guidelines for how we should refer to older adults. And so they talk about, you know, they've done a number of research, They've done quite a bit of research in this area through the Frameworks Institute, which looks a lot at language and how language frames the experiences that people have. So, you know, and they've been able to demonstrate that when you talk about people, you call them seniors... Um, you know that's the kind of an othering kind of thing. So the, mm-hmm. the proper terminology now is older adults. Yeah. Um, and so I think even language, the way we speak about the aging process, and how the way we speak about older adults. So, for example, if you look at the media, they talk about things like the gray tsunami. Yes. Or, um, yeah. Or you know, and and what that implies. Is that there's this huge wave of boomers that's going to crash the healthcare system? <laughs> it's going to suck up all the pension, and that's a very negative kind of message that yeah. the media, you know, portrays, and so that that gets internalized as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I have been hearing that message. I know we talked about that in in class, but I've been hearing that message for over a decade. Like, oh, the yeah. boomers are getting older. Like. There's no pensions left. There's no, no use in even having a job with a pension because you're never going to get it. And it's just like, is that even true? Like, I don't, I don't even know. Like, there's a lot of arguments to be made against that mentality.
1: Yeah, that's true. And in fact, if you look at healthcare costs, and this is a very general statement, but healthcare costs um, are very much tied to the increased use of technology and keeping yeah. people alive as long as you possibly can. So if yeah. you sort of parcel out, well, how much are, are you know skyrocketing healthcare costs due to older older people, uh, you know, versus you know, the use of technology, um you know, it's the use of technology that, you know, is is actually a bigger contributor to, you know, soaring healthcare costs.
0: Yeah, and pharmaceuticals, you know, yes, I,
1: right? Like, absolutely. think about how many
0: people are in mid-age using pharmaceuticals, multiple medications per day. That has a much bigger impact on the cost of health care than older adults.
1: Yeah, and I guess I have to get a plug-in for prevention—the lack of attention to preventive strategies, yeah. you know. And again, I've been saying this for over 30 years, um, <laughs> but you know, prevention is everything. Uh, and such a small amount of the of healthcare dollars are really tied to prevention at any age. Yeah. So you know that would be my other statement about that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having, you know, discussions, and again, there's been so much media attention to this that I hesitate to even bring it up, but having discussions about kind of what, what do you want as an older person and the need for advanced care planning around that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, having conversations with family members about, you know, do you want that technology?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, do you not want that technology? And, you know, with medical assistance in dying, you know, coming into effect, there's been changes you know happening all along. you know, those are going to be difficult discussions. So now Very. we. Thought- with Audrey's amendment, you can say, if you have a, a major neurocognitive disorder, you can give consent, you know, prior to being unable to give consent. So, you know, how do you, how do you have these conversations with the people that you love? Um, yeah. So it's, it's going to be an interesting time. It's a very interesting
0: time. Yeah. That, because they're just, are they passing that for
1: minors as well? You know, I don't want to quote the legislation because I'm not. I'm not sure. Minors are very. Uh, it's a very complex kind of area. They mm-hmm. do have a working group that's looking at minors, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not. I do. I don't think so. But don't quote me on that because I'm not absolutely sure. Uh, my interest is really kind of more mental health kinds of things, which come into effect next year, March in March, um, where MAID can be enacted. You know, for certain circumstances, certain mental health circumstances. So, but I'm not sure about minors.
0: What, what are your thoughts on that? You can be as controversial as you'd like.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I have a lot of, I, I know I have a lot of firsthand experience with persistent and debilitating mental health issues yeah. that are essentially intractable. Yeah. So things, everything has been tried, pharmaceuticals, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, um, you know, and I think in those kinds of circumstances, I would certainly consider made uh, for intractable mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it's taken me a long time to come to that. Um, I've thought about it a lot. I'm not still not 100% comfortable with what I've just said. (laughs) But, um, but that would be, you know, the other thing that I'm very excited about is the potential of psychedelics. Um, and I know I've talked about this with you before, but mm-hmm. I, I'm just, you know, there's so much new information coming out about psychedelics. There's a new chair at the university of Calgary, completely devoted to sort of it, it, researching psychedelics um, in the treatment of um, disorders, including mental health disorders that are intractable. I'm very excited about that area of research and, and quite optimistic um, if it's done in a controlled situation Mm -hmm. uh, with all the protections in place for clients. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, yeah, so I think, I think that's another very exciting area in terms of, um, you know, with aging in particular.
0: Yeah. I've had the, I've had these conversations with my husband, so many different times, you know, like, you know, the ethical considerations of MAID. And for those of you that, that don't know what MAID is, it's medical assistance in dying. Um, and I'm also excited about the use of psychedelics for that possible treatment because, uh, you know, I have a faith background. And so that, that colors my perceptions on death. And I understand yes. that. I, I have biases because of that but I also believe in, in freedom of choice. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting crossroads to be at. And I think if we could offer more solutions like psychedelic assisted therapy and it worked, why wouldn't we like, why wouldn't we use everything we have at our disposal?
1: Yeah, and I I also have a faith background, so I know Mm -hmm. that some of the things I've said today are probably very controversial. Yeah, Um, you know, coming from a faith background and still being in a faith community. Yeah. Um. But at the end of the day, it's a very personal, you know, kind of decision, and very, you know, so something you have to grapple with. I think what's going to be really interesting about psychedelics is that you know, um, people like me grew up really with psychedelics through the yeah. 60s you know so um i was a child but still you know that had a big influence on me um timothy leary and yeah. you know i was always into sort of cultural kinds of things even as a kid <laughs> and so it's going to be interesting to see it wouldn't surprise me at all if psychedelics are quite well received by boomers um aging boomers and and that's that's very that's very, very positive in my mind
0: yeah yeah that's a good point what are some differences between normal age-related changes and pathological or pathogenic kind of age-related changes? Because I think um, that's important to distinguish some of those just normal aging processes that people can expect to happen.
1: Right. So, in what area is it in general? Do you want me to talk about in yeah, general? Yeah, just, just general okay well let me let me first of all say that um we know a lot more about some areas than others so there's been a lot of research done in the area of intelligence and you know what's a normal age relating or age-related kind of patterns in, in intelligence and so we make the distinction between sort of crystallized intelligence and um, fluid intelligence and so just um, to define this um, for your, reader, for your listeners, crystallized intelligence has to do with kind of prior learning, uh, experience, it has a verbal component. Fluid intelligence, on the other hand, has more of a neurological basis. It has to do with problem-solving skills, sometimes speeded tasks. You're asked to solve no- novel problems. The age-related literature is very clear that crystallized intelligence is very stable into late life. Mm. So that experience, that wisdom, Um, is very stable, uh, you know, into the 7th, 8th, even beyond that, the 7th or 8th time period, uh, the 70s or 80s. Um, Fluid intelligence, though, starts to decline around the age of 25. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a normal kind of age-related pattern that we see. Um, You know, in the area of bereavement, for example, we're beginning to know, understand more about what is, again, I put this in quotes, normal bereavement versus complicated bereavement. Um, You know, in the social domain, we know that people prune their social relationships. So in fact, they, um, they value more intimate and close relationships as they grow older, um, you know, and they begin to sort of prune their social networks. Um, In contrast, young adults tend to have much larger social networks, because it's very adaptable for them at that age, because, you know, they have certain life tasks that they need to that they want to accomplish work. Finding a partner, those kinds of things. So there are certain domains where we know a lot about normal age related changes. Mm-hmm. Other areas we know very little. So things like wisdom, um, oh, what else? Emotion regulation, those kinds of things. You know, we know that older adults are better at emotion regulation, but we're not still we're not quite sure kind of what what is normal and what is I put it in quotes abnormal. Yeah. Um but again you know, I think when we when we sort of look at sort of what is abnormal aging, we often look at it in terms of what is a change for that person. So right. if you notice a significant change in that person, then you need to start thinking more about kind of abnormal aging,
0: yeah. disease yeah. processes going on. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Does yeah. that does that make sense?
0: Yeah, for sure. So like, is it normal, um, to have some vision loss as you get older?
1: Absolutely. Okay.
0: Does it it's mean that it, it, it's a disease process going on? If it's just it's your vision changes a bit.
1: Uh, absolutely. So things like cataracts, glaucoma, um, you know, those kind of eye diseases are very much age related. Hearing loss is age related. Um, I think what's really interesting and one of the things I think your listeners might be interested is we're, you know, beginning to find out more and more about the way hearing loss is related to cognitive impairment. Um, And that's a a risk factor that um, has just, you know, sort of started to emerge that people are, you know, sort of learning about. And, you know, it may have something to do with, uh, you know, not, you know, wanting to stay out of environments where you're, you know, you're not able to hear. So it may, you know, has something to do with less social interaction. We're not quite sure what the mechanism is. But certainly, uh, just a tip, if you're losing your hearing, get hearing aids. Uh, And again, you know, I think that's one area where the system, the the healthcare system could support older adults uh, much better, because there's not a lot of reimbursement, for example, through public plans for hearing aids and they're, they're so expensive. expensive. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that would be just a very small thing that could change that would really have a you know, potentially a very large impact on cognitive impairment.
0: Mm.
1: Um so, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: oral health as well, hey.
1: Absolutely. Oral health would be another another big one. Um and you know, I I guess oral health is so tied to the to the to the um sort of the whole, I mean, to, to health in general, um, and the microbiome and all those other yeah. kinds of things. So yeah, so oral health would be another example.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't want to keep you too much longer and, and use up all your time. But I just wanted to talk about um, dementia, just for, you know, a little bit. And I know we could, we could talk, you know, forever about dementia. But what are some, maybe some warning signs that someone could be, you know, starting, I know dementia starts much earlier in life and we see symptoms later on, but what are some warning signs of right. dementia compared to just normal age related changes in cognition?
1: Okay. Um, I would say a word finding difficulty might be one, um, and again, I'm not talking about that tip of the tongue phenomenon that affects people. Um, older people where you just can't quite find the word or you just can't quite find the name. But if you wait long enough, it does come. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm talking about, and again, everything that I'm talking about is a matter of degree. Um, and uh, so again, you know, word finding difficulty, maybe remembering the names of people that you've known for a very long time and you've had, you know, you know pretty consistent contact with might be something else Um, getting lost in familiar settings uh, Mm -hmm. might be another uh, area of concern Um, difficulty doing familiar tasks that you've done for a long time so um, I have a family member who I became concerned when she was no longer able to cook she was no longer able to sequence the recipe Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so that was when I became really concerned and you know uh, and then I guess trouble making everyday decisions, which is kind of a, a tricky one, because that's also very much associated with anxiety. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's the interesting thing about a lot of these cognitive changes is that they're they're related to anxiety. So, you know, if if you are anxious about your memory. Um, then that anxiety may interfere with your ability to do certain things. So, you know, it, that's that's an important consideration. Uh, losing or misplacing things, and again, I'm not talking about, you know, losing keys that you've always lost, but mm-hmm. I- any kind of change um, where you're seeing it more frequently, um, forgetting important events, you know, like birthdays and anniversaries and, and those kinds of things. Um, and again, but what, what I want your listeners to know is that often people who have memory concerns have no reason to be concerned. Yeah. So memory complaints are are symptomatic of a lot of different things, including depression. Yeah. So, you know, trying to disentangle what is a mental health issue and, and what is a cognitive issue, I think is one of the more complex areas in in my field.
0: Yeah. Differentiating between depression and dementia. I mean, that it's a challenge in and of itself, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah, it is, and it, it often um, goes misidentified, yeah, and, and therefore doesn't get treated.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so, uh, and that's that's a difficult situation for sure. Because
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there's no formal diagnosis for uh, dementia, is there? Like, you you can't like get a test or a blood test or a scan, and you know for sure. Even like the the beta amyloid plaque cascade hypothesis is kind of like we're, we're, we're questioning that now, aren't we?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a best guess, you know, and then kind of you have lots of diagnostic kind of things that you can look at. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So you're basically taking all this diagnostic information. Some of it is medical and physiological. Others are sort of based on self-report and neuropsychological instruments that we use and you put it all together and you, you have, you know, you provide a, what we call a presumptive diagnosis or, Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right; it's not always definitive, and you need to rule out, you know, things, you know, simple things before you make that kind of diagnosis. Uh, unfortunately, a, lo- a lot of people don't have access to those very thorough assessments, and they get labeled prematurely, which yeah. in in itself acts as a self reinforcing kind of prophecy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately.
0: Well, well, I like that. You know, um, this is one thing we talked about in class that cognitive impairment sit on a scale right a spectrum because you get a diagnosis of of dementia it completely changes a person's life and it's all of a sudden you know they go downhill fast after that diagnosis Mm -hmm. where maybe it could be mild cognitive impairment and it doesn't affect them as much
1: or it doesn't progress
0: doesn't progress
1: yeah yeah. And again, you know, not only do you feel differently about yourself, but other people feel differently about you as well. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, that kind of gets reinforced.
0: hmm. So many interacting factors at play when it comes to our health and aging. Well, isn't there?
1: Yeah. It, it, I guess that's what makes it infinitely interesting to me mm-hmm. is just the complexity of it. And. Um, and just. just the simple joy of, of working with older people.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. What are some prevention strategies for cognitive impairment?
1: Um, Well, that's interesting. Um, The data um, would suggest um, things like healthy eating. And again, you know, this data is not we're not talking about a lot of randomized control trials, yeah. but, you know, observational studies and those kinds of things would support uh, a Mediterranean diet, yep. the DASH diet, those kinds of things. Um, and I'm sure your your listeners are familiar with those diets. Exercise, we've already mentioned um, things like, you know, good, healthy practices like managing your blood pressure, getting enough sleep, Um Reducing unhealthy habits, you know, alcohol, uh, smoking, those kinds of things. In Intellectual stimulation. And again, you know, uh, there is some supportive data in this area, you know, staying engaged with life, you know, good social support. Um, and again, you know, uh, you know, doing simple things like, you know, when you're talking to your family doctor, discussing kind of medications that you're on um, and, you know, Potential interactions or your pharmacist, um, those kinds of things. Um, Hearing assessment, put a plug in again for hearing assessment Mm -hmm. and, and access to hearing aids. Um, being aware of delirium and and the impact of delirium on cognitive functioning. So uh, in acute care, uh, you know, there's a very high prevalence of of delirium, and uh, healthcare systems have become much more cognizant of that now. So they do routine assessment of delirium, but there's a certain percentage of people who get it who get delirious who have a delirium episode that will not completely recover cognitively. Mm-hmm. So trying to prevent um, delirium and I guess treating depression. Yeah. You know, Depression is related to poor cognition, but it is entirely reversible. Mm-hmm. Lots of good evidence base that depression can be treated in older adults. So those are some of the things that, that I would recommend.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I like to end the podcast with a few fun questions. Okay. So if you were stranded on a desert island and could only pick one <laughs> food to eat for the rest of your life, and nutrition didn't matter; it was solely based on pleasure. What would that food be?
1: I don't know if I can get my head around no nutrition. <laughs> I know, I
0: know. It just, but it it could be nutritious, but like, and it does not have to be a single food. It could be like pizza, or you know, whatever.
1: Oh, probably carrot cake. <laughs> oh,
0: nice.
1: <laughs> I have yeah. not heard that one before. My own carrot cake. I make a very mean carrot cake. <laughs> yeah. yeah Yeah. I love carrot
0: cake as all that is a good good option what's the best
1: meal you've ever eaten um well I make I I like to eat my own food (laughs) and and uh I think salmon I you know we have a fabulous salmon recipe and um yeah so I think I think salmon we have a we went fishing this summer and we're very fortunate and caught a freezer full so I got oh, enough salmon nice. to last me all winter oh, yeah, yeah. And that's so, the best yeah. kind yeah it has to be something something with salmon
0: mm,
1: mm. what's your
0: least favorite
1: food um, at least oh probably marshmallows, marshmallows. <laughs> yeah, yeah when I was a kid, you know we had I was I dropped a whole bunch of marshmallows on the floor when I was a kid. And rather than putting them back in the bag, I ate the whole bag. And, oh, and no. I've never recovered. <laughs> so I'm not a big marshmallow fan. That's for sure.
0: What is your favorite restaurant? And it could be in Calgary or it could be anywhere. Um, I love the Nash. Mm, I haven't been there
1: yeah down in Inglewood and I think partly because my uh, you know um, a family member got married there recently and it was just such a wonderful experience so but I love the food I love the staff I love the environment okay well that's going to be
0: next on my bucket list then yeah wonderful what's your favorite travel destination that you've been to oh Africa yeah what was what was your favorite part about it
1: Um, The different uh, cultures that we were exposed to, just the, uh, on the safari, the way the whole ecosystem is interrelated, so seeing the animals, seeing all the flora and fauna, and I have to say we had a terrific guide, we were on our own sort of private, in our own private situation, and he he really brought it alive for us, how dependent the flora and the fauna are on each other. Mm. Um, so, yeah, um, I just absolutely loved it.
0: Oh, wonderful. This is a, a bit of a deeper question. What is the lie you tell yourself most often?
1: Uh, the lie? Oh, that's an interesting question. The lie. Um <laughs> a lie Uh, probably that I will never I will always be healthy (laughs) and I'm not sure if it's a lie I think it's more kind of you know uh, I've always I've always enjoyed such good health. Though so maybe it's simply denial. Maybe it's not a lie. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll reframe that like all good cognitive behavioral psychologists do. We'll call it denial. <laughs> not, not a particularly adaptive coping strategy, I must say.
0: <laughs> what is the happiest moment in your life?
1: Uh, the birth of my children. Yeah. Wonderful. Hands and what down
0: what advice would you like to leave our listeners with in regard to their health
1: be intentional uh you know don't sort of think about kind of the future that you want um, and what are the strategies that you need to uh, implement in order to do that uh, within obvious constraints you know not you know there are financial constraints obviously but but just be intentional and don't be afraid to think about growing older um, and the kind and thinking about how you want to grow older, because you do have control over it. Mm. So um, I guess that would be my best piece of advice followed by engage humor. Uh, Love that. Yeah, it's uh, laugh, laugh more.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Love that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Thank Connor you. for coming on the show. It was such a, an absolute pleasure to have you. Well, it's always a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please leave me a review as your reviews get this message of better health out there. You can also follow me on Instagram at Lena Jade's Healthy Life where I post fitness, nutrition, and psychology content. All right, you guys, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. And as you go throughout your day, always remember, you are powerful over your health.